I'll be honest with you, I don't believe that countries of Southeast Asia or, or India need to wait for the United States or Russia or Canada. I can't imagine a more a perpetuation of a kind of slavish colonial mentality than that. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Impacting Asia podcast with me, Taymor Nabili. China is already, by some estimates, the biggest economy in the world. And as the rest of Asia modernizes rapidly, it's clear that the future is Asian. But how is the region modernizing? What part do sustainability and technology play in this development? And what part do governments play, both Asian and other? My guest Parag Khanna's latest book is called The Future is Asian – commerce, conflict and culture in the 21st century. As well as being a best-selling author of six books, Parag is a world traveller and an advisor to business and government through his firm FutureMap, a data and scenario-based strategic advisory company. I began our conversation by asking him whether Asia's developing countries will follow the industrialization template set by the West, or if they could chart a new development path of sustainability. I think that is the big question or one of the big questions. The the first is a geopolitical one, which is, does the rise of Asia necessarily mean the decline of others? And the answer to that is no. And fundamentally, the ways in which we measure power and gravity, the gravity of a region or an economy in the world, haven't changed that much. Obviously, nuclear weapons matter less. Currency reserves and technological innovation matter more. But those are all elements of power. And if you measure global power even in the most, uh, you know, either the old ways or the new ways, you would still conclude that the world is multipolar. North America, Europe, and Asia matter the most. So the rise of Asia is not about replacing or displacing, eviscerating the West, however you define the West. It's about the advent, the rise, for the first time in history, of a truly global multipolar world. We've had multipolarity before, but it's never been global where you really had a number of Asian powers co-defining the system. So now we get to your question. So is this rise of Asia as a multipolar system with the majority of the world population, majority of global GDP, is it simply the case, economically at least, of the next region entering that sweet spot historically where you have uh, geopolitical stability, industrialization, uh, young populations, all of those forces come together, this perfect alignment of the stars, and for anywhere from half a century or more, they grow in this uninterrupted expansionist way and build the modern uh, Western societies that we know today. So your question is, is Asia just going to do the same thing? And the answer is a bit of... And in the same way. Right, in the same way. So it's a bit of yes and a bit of no. So when it comes to the very important foundations of, you know, infrastructural modernity, the answer is yes, in many ways. You know, do we have roads? Do we have railways, airports, schools, hospitals, modern government facilities, offices? All of those aspects of modern infrastructural life, that would you would say, okay, well, that's not dissimilar, right? 
But of course, a lot of it is being built or needs to be built in different ways. When Europe and America were rising and growing and urbanizing, they didn't have to worry about coastal megacities being sunk by rising sea levels and by the flooding from the Mekong River or Himalayan glaciers. And the largest European cities uh, or Western cities like New York, Los Angeles, and London have metropolitan populations of 10 to 12 million people, not 60 or 70 million people the way you have in the greater Bay Area or you know the, the corridor uh, from Tokyo to Osaka and so forth. So the nature of the Ge geography and dem demography and the climatological parameters, the planetary boundaries, as some like to say, are obviously different, right? So history does not repeat itself. But how do we get to that point where Asia has all those desirable features of a developed country without challenging the environment and those externalities right. that the West took for granted? Right. Well, let's remember that we there's in, in, at some level, we're already past that question. You're not asking a future hypothetical. You're asking a question that we should have been dealing with 25 years ago because the accumulated emissions in the atmosphere from almost a, not pre-Chinese growth, but certainly pre-massive emissions outputting China but that's the were already question. dangerous enough, let alone China today and India today. Most recent recent measurements suggest that China is responsible for 25% of global emissions but, more but, than the United States. Put China aside for a moment. Yeah. I mean, we still have an enormous number of countries in the Asian continent, not just Southeast Asia where we are, but all the, the stand states, if you like, yeah. all of which are sitting in a position where they're going, well, we would like those desirable infrastructures right. and institutions. Yeah. And the, the, the global situation that you just highlighted is not something that they can take into account. Right without damaging their prospects. Correct. And this is why I'm glad you, you know, when you ask the question sort of, can Asia develop? And, and what I want to emphasize is that you are rightly asking about what I call the fourth wave Asian economies. So mm -hmm. not China, which is already very modern, not Japan, not the tiger economy, certainly not Taiwan, South Korea, not the first world part mm -hmm. of Asia. The majority of Asia has, as you rightly imply, yet to develop. So the question is for them. So what we're really talking about is the next... 2 billion Asian consumers and citizens, mm -hmm. right? How do they ur urbanize? How do they consume? Um, and can that be done in a more sustainable way? The answer, both in theory and practice, is yes. The challenge is scale, right? So how do you do the right things that are being done in some places at a much vast or almost universal scale across these, say, 12, 15 countries. Well, for the, for the sake of simplicity, yeah. can I break it down into, into two parts? I mean, you say the answer is yes, insofar as we have the capacity. But what about the policymaking side? Right. And what about that tension yeah. between those governments who want to uh, deliver the results that we're talking about right. as quickly as possible and effectively yeah. as yeah. possible? and the stress that that puts on the sustainable sure. development goals and the way we're thinking in yeah. terms of the planetary yeah. boundaries. But even within fourth wave Asia, you can't really generalize about the caliber, the, the capacity, the vision of the governments, right? We can't really refer to Asian governments having similar mm. desires and capacities to achieve sustainable growth because they don't, right? Some don't really even acknowledge, you know, the sort of challenges ahead because uh, in any case, rhetorically, you know, they may still 
be focused on this sort of north-south divide. What I think it really comes down to is technology transfer, an affordable technology transfer. I would, quite frankly, replace a lot of the climate summitry, you know, with uh, private jets flying to Bali and Copenhagen and Cancun and then whatnot. I would really replace it with um, a lot more technology transfer. If you focused a lot more on transferring the best practices out of China and India and Japan into the poorer countries and subsidizing their um, achievement of their energy objectives, you know, their electrification goals, their industrial goals, but doing so in a sustainable way, then there would not be a contradiction between those countries having uh, job creation, electricity supply, you know, better education, the goals that they have, healthcare, and the environment. Yes, governments are different. Yes, they have utterly different ways of doing things, and the diversity is bewildering. But having said that, Again, when we talk about planetary boundaries, there's going to have to be some kind of rapid alignment towards uh, some sort of commonality in purpose and practical execution, isn't there? Before we achieve the transfer of technology, how do we achieve the transfer, the meme, if you like, of sustainability into policymaking? I'll be honest with you. I don't believe that local actors or regional governments and countries should be waiting for a grand binding, you know, Paris style, Paris plus kind of consensus. Is, is, it, too, they is act. it too utopian to think that perhaps we should be Probably, pressuring them to do so? Yeah. I mean, I look, I don't think that, you know, the, again, countries of Southeast Asia or, or India need to wait for whether or not the United States or Russia or Canada sign on to uh, to the Paris Climate Agreement or to actually make good on their promises to do something for themselves. That would be ridiculous because global governance doesn't really work that way. You know, it's, it's not really, it doesn't live up to, in reality, what it's what it purports to be on paper. So and at so this point in time, remember, who is most negatively impacted, right? It's Asian countries mm, themselves. Right. So to think that they need to wait for Moscow and, and uh, Ottawa and Washington and London to um, you know, show diplomatic willpower before they act in their own interest is utterly ridiculous. I so, can't imagine a more uh, a perpetuation of a kind of slavish colonial mentality than that. Do yeah. we conclude then th- that what we should be talking about when talking about technology transfer is a private sector-based technology Not transfer mechanism that will no, bypass that kind I of think, thing? I think let's remember that institutions of global governance, such as the Bretton Woods bodies in the United Nations, get too little credit for how they've been ahead of the curve in arguing for uh, and promoting uh, these kinds of approaches. If you think about even the term sustainable urbanization, goes back to Stockholm 1972, United Nations you know, habitat uh, meetings. If you think about um, the World Bank's clean development mechanism, again, focused on technology mm. transfer for sustainability, goes back to uh, early, you know, mid-2000s. Can necessary technology transfer occur in an environment without proper policy support? Yes, it's happening all the time. That's where markets come in, right? And they've been critical for this because you have market opening and privatization and uh, trade liberalization happening irrespective of whether or not you have a binding Paris, you know, sort of a climate agreement. How does the text transfer work? I mean, what, tell me tell me your experiences and how it's been occurring in an Asian context thus far. Right. Um, and 
whether it's been optimal or how can we make it optimal? Yeah. So first is just in, you know, hydrocarbon markets, right? Just the gas transition is finally accelerating in Asia, right? Uh, this is still obviously the region that consumes the most fossil fuels and imports the most from West Asia, from the, the uh, Arab uh, Persian Gulf countries. But at the same time, you finally have a regional gas market. So you have a lot of infrastructure investment in, in, in gas, uh, you know, technology and so forth. So that's one critical uh, thing. And that means uh, itself, obviously, just less emissions generation there, while also, of course, critically providing the energy for populations to develop and modernize, urbanize, mm -hmm. and so on. Then if you look at solar, obviously, because of uh, you know what China has done in terms of the subsidies given to that market, on the one hand, it's been anti-competitive from the perspective of Western companies in that field. On the other hand, it's massively brought down the cost of solar. So you see a you know, huge um, increase in in many Asian countries, if not most, that are very large scale solar projects now, provided they have the right climate, you know, sort of conditions. So from Mongolia to India, mm. everywhere, you have solar as a key feature of rural electrification now everywhere because the cost has come down. And you see more and more of that happening, again, not because um, Paris happened, because it didn't really happen. But right? again, you see you see um, more and more of it, but it's, it's in discrete small scale units. Right. Is it enough for what we're doing? And how can we make sure that that transfer becomes right. the dominant mode of thinking as opposed to just a fill-in for the yeah. other part? Well, the first answer to your question has to be a much more honest and, and brutally honest kind of appraisal of where we are in terms of the planetary balance, which if it is as precarious as you know we're led to believe, and we shouldn't necessarily doubt it, or if anything, we should apply the precautionary principle and, and, and overcompensate at times like this, we would need to do a lot more than simply distributing lots of solar panels, given where we are with mm. sea level rise and, and glacial melt and so forth. So this, we're, this being part of yeah, the whole point of these conversations. We're at the phase now where we <laughs> need to be talking about serious geoengineering. I mm. mean, if you want to be having a serious conversation encompassing all issues, you'd be saying, I really hope that there's some major geoengineering project that's being cooked up Manhattan style, Manhattan project style uh, in secret. Um, and that it's already being deployed. So whether that is sulfur particles in the atmosphere, or um, you know, sort of um, you know, working to to reduce ocean acidification, um, you know, applying sand to icy uh, you know glaciers and surfaces, Greenland and and uh, Antarctica to reflect more light. All of these kinds of they're not to absorb less yeah. heat. All these kinds of things. I I quite frankly hope we're doing it right. I hope that Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos <laughs> and uh, Jack but Ma. Failing. And everyone. Failing that. What, um, what can we do? So, look, I mean, I think that there's there's no question that already, again, today, because we're, it's not that today is this sort of T equals zero moment. It's not, right? No. If you had a T equals zero, it was 1970 or something like that. Other, others would say it's 1790 because actually it was kind of the Industrial Revolution that set us on this path. Right. A good friend of mine has just done a book about how we need to bring the world population back down to 3 billion people, which is what it, what it was at the Sounds time. Sounds like the plot of the Avengers movie. <laughs> of the Industrial Revolution. Hopefully, less uh, violent. Uh, but anyway, we're not going to have that happen either because you don't have global population control, global demographic you know, migration but, policy, but none of these things. But we still got that government thing. I mean, um, you talked about Bangladesh yeah. being, being um, you know, a, a hotbed of, of micro-solar power, and, but we still have China's Belt and Road Project right. funding coal mines. So this thing, Exactly. So you, because you, we do not live in a world where either international uh, regulation or diplomatic bodies or even other state-level regulations that are meant to be exported, like French uh, clean energy policy aren't 
sufficiently don't have sufficient leverage or or aren't binding on Chinese behavior are still going to have lots of Chinese coal-fired power plants. Basically, countries given certain industrial interests and you know corporate interests and whatnot, even if they're authoritarian systems like China, aren't going to be able to prevent local actors and businesses from exploiting every last cheap resource available, whether it's wood or coal or mm -hmm. whatever the case may be. And that's what you see in India and in China. And if India and China are still doing a lot of coal, obviously you're still going to have a lot of coal. So the question becomes not, let's wait for there to be a, a binding Paris-style agreement that China and India will obey, because again, I have to remind you, that's never going to happen. How do you disincentivize countries from doing certain things? So if you think about... Uh, let's go back to to French policy on this. Um, you know, with, with Macron's policy or or what he threatened to do with the EU Mercosur trade agreement, so he basically he, both France and Ireland threatened to hold up the EU Mercosur trade agreement unless uh, uh, the president of Brazil took stronger action against uh, the Amazon, you know, wildfires, mm -hmm. things like that. Right? That's the maximum amount of leverage that's yet in any one particular episode been applied internationally around climate policy related issue. So if you want to talk about genuine coercion, it would be more things like that. The alternate approach, not coercion, is sort of bribery, right? You know, how can we come in in a responsibility to protect style kind of approach and intervene and help you for free, not only free of charge, but to your own benefit, stop your wildfires, reforest your land, um, uh, obviously make your irrigation more sustainable so that your pipes are less leaky, you know, and move all your people to a plant-based diet, <laughs> you know, whatever the case may be. All of the many required interventions in the agricultural sector, building, cement, aviation, automotive, uh, forestry, how do we clean up the supply chains internationally and within specific countries that are the most dangerous kind of offenders. That, again, is a much more technical, market-based, and, and uh, technological approach to the issue than a diplomatic one. Do I think the diplomatic one still matters? Sure. All right, but so, let's so face what, what, what it. What are the market-based and technology solutions then? What are, how, do, how do we approach this? Well, we've already gone through a couple of cycles of them. If you think about carbon markets and cap and trade and this kind of thing, this was a robust industry going back already you know, 10 plus years, but it's been somewhat discredited mm. because there's been a lot of fudging. And again, we clearly see that it doesn't has not really reduced our collective emissions. But that does not mean that you're going to have binding global action and issues but where I'm, sovereignty I'm still looking, still I'm still looking for, for ways in which we can create some sort of global action. I think more in terms of supply chains than national boundaries. And I think that's factually accurate because if you look at Chinese emissions, 40 to 50% of it is global supply chains that are producing in China mm. for global markets. Thinking in terms of national uh, boundaries is not helpful in many of these areas. So what you would want to see is where can we see copycat regulations? So when, for example, you have new regulations around lighter materials for aircraft design, you know, and, and shifting towards new mixes of fuel. Uh, how do you pass on those regulations, transfer those technologies? Building design, right? So you've got building codes and certifications in Europe around climate neutral buildings, uh, even, even climate negative kinds of uh, buildings. How can you pass on those best practices? And again, it happens in a small scale way. That's why um, European architects and designers, property developers are quite active across Asia because they've done this in Europe and now they want to do it in mm. Vietnam and in Thailand and elsewhere. And Vietnam and Thailand are letting them do it. They're inviting them to do it. But it's still not cheap. European technology is not cheap. Trade, is there something that yeah. we can replace the summitry with that would give it more of a center, that would yes, give it more of an absolutely. impetus? absolutely. It would be 
subs a, a massive fund that subsidizes clean tech transfer, right? A to, massive fund based in who's no, money? No, it could be uh, many funds. There already okay. are many funds. Right. See, like I say, we're already getting there yeah. because we have many, many clean tech transfer funds, many of them. You know, again, the European Union subsidizes this for many other countries in the world, including in Asia, for the last 20 years. This is not new, right? And the World Bank, as I said at the beginning, has been doing this for 15 years. This is not new. I would put a lot more money into those. It doesn't have to sit at the UN, no one's going to put more money into that anyway, right? It should be done at this inter-regional, bilateral, international, or, uh, you know, private uh, mm -hmm. level. And I think, again, that is happening. That's where all the money should be going. If you're, a, you know, a donor, aid agency, whatever the case may be, you should be contributing to those kinds of funds, and that will accelerate these efforts. But ch chatting with you, I mean, I, I get the, I get an optimistic impression. I mean, I'm feeling better about the whole system. Really? I don't know why well, you would. <laughs> well, because, because, I mean, you keep telling me how there are these systems in, systems in place and things happening well, and to, initiatives to, underway. I mean, and so ultimately, we, we, we come back around to the initial question, which is, if it's not enough, what can we do to make a difference? Well, like I say, I mean, I, I actually think that we're in a in a sort of at the geoengineering existential kind of yeah. moment, or that we should at least again, you know, overcompensate and uh, and and try to stabilize the environment as much as possible uh, now. So perhaps uh, the perhaps the sub subtitle to your book, "The Futurization," should be "The Futurization brackets." If we have a future at all, the, I could have called the book "The Present is Asian" because again, Asia is even even absent or with or without yeah. climate catastrophe scenarios is more than half the world's population and is half the world's economy. So the present is Asian. We live in an Asian world. Whether or not some people have woken up to that is 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 irrelevant, right? It's just a fact. Yeah. So in terms of the future, the questions that you're asking and we're discussing are really the future of Asia, not whether or not the world is Asian, right? Because the, the demo, global demography is going to be Asian forever. So the future of Asia is the question. Right, okay. And is the future of Asia sustainable? The answer is, depends on where you live, right? I mean, a place like Japan is weathering, pardon the pun, you know, sort of climate change better than other places because it's rich, because of its geography, latitude, other factors. And so, you know, it can potentially replenish its population through migration. So I think we're going to see huge realignments, you know, of, uh, of economic, political, and human geography in the years ahead. But they too will happen very, very incrementally. You have these slow, gradual movements and shifts and accommodations, the way in which Japan is doing with its immigration policy and so on. Yeah, you actually do. Mm. Let me finish with just the question of technology and its transfer. In your travels around Asia, are you seeing um, a particularly fertile country, uh, supply chain, um, industry that you think technology is, is really taking hold in and that could make a difference? That's a very general question, I know, but I'm just yeah. thinking about what... Uh, what are the areas that are really gathering steam? We know that solar has picked up a lot of ground. And uh, that, as you say, China has driven that market to a large extent. Uh, but tell me a little bit more about your experiences with technology adoption. Around well, you the know that, that nuclear is also getting pretty big. Um, you know, so whether it is uh, Central Asian countries, uh, even, even Arab countries, India, uh, China, there's a lot of nuclear projects around Eurasia. Um, you know, and, and I think that that is promising also because there's newer, you know, safer as well, allegedly, uh, you know, nuclear technologies. Mm. So Asia going in that direction of nuclear um, and obviously Japan turning away from it, but potentially could turn back 
is a positive sign. And, you know, even commodities, even oil and gas exporting countries are doing it precisely in order to uh, export more of their fossil fuels and generate more of their growing domestic demand through through nuclear. And that mm-hmm. will reduce a lot of their domestic emissions potentially. So I think that there's some promise in the nuclear in the hydrogen, arena. Things like that? Um, again, you know, these breakthrough technologies, sure. So, you know, Korea is working on hydrogen uh, at a very substantial industrial scale uh, for industry, for, for urban you know, power consumption and, and so forth. I think that's promising to auto, automotive too. But some of the, you know, the thing with all of these that we've seen some of these technologies with the exception of hydrogen, they've been a lot around quite a while. So I would just remind you, you know, we, we said at the beginning, the problem is scale. Do we see things happening in the right direction? Absolutely. Scale is the issue, right? And it, that's the part that I find most sad. We see breakthrough ideas in nutrition or in clean energy generation or in, you know, um, uh, uh, having um, you know a mobile payments and so forth, thing you know things that reduce corruption, things that reduce uh, malnutrition, things that improve education. Some of these innovations we've seen more than a decade, uh, and we know that they're cost effective, and we don't see them universalize as fast as they most obviously should, because the world is very bumpy mm. and bordered, you know, and uh, and that's the problem. So you've, you know, you've, you've consistently been asking this question about, well, then, you know, the role of the government, right, and governments. And I've said, yes, they're extremely important. I would never deny it, but this is not a region of the world where you have either one government mm. or one type of government. This is the most diverse region of the planet Earth, ethnically, linguistically, um, type, the types of regimes you find here, the capacity of governments, um, and therefore, there isn't going to be an Asian answer as important as Asia is. All right. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you, Tim.